welcome to Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and each episode I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of a top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and will be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that will help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Zach Harris, the Assistant Director of College Counseling and Communications at Ingenious Prep, on how to navigate testing changes in college admissions in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, Zach. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Ellen. I'm, how are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. So I'd love to start good. off. Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself, your experience in admissions? Yeah, sure. So I have been in this industry for about 14 years, which every time I say that makes me seem super, super old. Um, but I started sort of right after uh, undergraduate uh, sort of school uh, for me and uh, started working at George Washington University and then moved on to Johns Hopkins University and then uh, Bowdoin College. And then after my career as director of admissions at Regis College, which is outside of Boston. And then uh, personally, I moved to San Diego, California and began working for Ingenious. And that was about five years ago. So in total about 14, 15 years, sort of in the higher education industry. And uh, yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic to do what I do, especially for, for Ingenious. And, working with different students and different families and just really, you know, helping them along uh, the long and uh, really fascinating college admissions journey. And you have a good mix of experience in both universities and liberal arts colleges, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, starting, first of all, I went to a liberal arts college. Uh, I graduated from Connecticut College uh, and then sort of went to, you know, GW for my master's degree and was working there in admissions and a very, I mean, just talk about ends of the spectrum in terms of college experience, right? Going to college in a school on a, you know, relatively rural campus of 2000 students uh, and then doing a master's and working in admissions um, at a school with, you know, 20,000 students sort of in total, you know, really integrated in, in a city and then sort of bouncing between Hopkins and then, you know, voted in, in Regis. Um, so I think it sort of allows me to talk to students who, sort of have their minds set on, on, on sort of a t- particular type of institution, but gives me the ability to say, hey, have you thought about this? Or when they say certain things that make me think that they could be a fit for one type of university or one type of liberal arts college, I sort of have the experience to say, hey, you may be thinking about this, but let's sort of talk about this other option that uh, may also be really intriguing and interesting to you as well. Transitioning to our topic today, Well, I think, first of all, testing in college admissions is kind of always changing. When I was applying to college, Mm -hmm. the SAT was out of 2,400, and now it's back to 1,600. So Mm -hmm. I can imagine parents, even older siblings, as they're trying to help their kids, they're struggling because, you know, even older siblings who are applying just a couple years ago, suddenly everything's different. So could we kind of maybe establish what was the testing landscape before COVID, and what is that testing landscape now in 2021? So, I mean, pre, pre-COVID, I think what you saw was sort of most schools requiring, you know, the SAT, you know, and or the ACT um, subject testing was something that was very prevalent. And for a lot of different institutions, it was something that was, you know, this sort of like strongly recommended but in admissions speak, like that really means like required. So it definitely was sort of, you pretty much had to do it. And, you know, there, there has been, I would say over the past five to 10 years, sort of a movement sort of in this test optional sort of space already. So, you know, I worked at Bowdoin, which was sort of the first test optional school uh, in the United States. And that happened, you know, in the late 1960s. We always sort of told a story that when Bowdoin did that 40, 50 years ago, they thought like it would be this mass movement 
And that didn't happen. Like nobody followed their lead. But as we sort of got into the 2000s, 2010s, um, it has become a bit more popular, but it still wasn't, um, especially for sort of the most, I guess, popular schools or schools that are, you know, ranked super highly. It still wasn't something that was very, very uh, sort of popular to do. So that was sort of like pre-COVID. Basically, you had to do it, had a choice sometimes, but not really. Post-COVID or sort of, I guess, during COVID, we're sort of in this like weird state of things are getting better in a lot of different places, but the impact of COVID um, obviously will be, felt for, will be sort of felt for a long time after this, is that most schools are test optional thinking about schools in the top 50, top 100, um, most of them do not require the SAT or the ACT any longer. Subject testing has been just discontinued, uh, which was a shock, I think, for most people. Um, You could sort of argue that the value of subject testing had been just decreasing sort of, you know, year by year because of how many people were taking it and, you know, what the relevance was anyway to someone's sort of ability to succeed in college in the first place. But that just doesn't exist, you know, really anymore, um, even internationally after June and, and sort of that particular testing date, nobody will be able to take the test, you know, in the future at all. So we are in a very you know, sort of interesting uh, sort of place of the landscape of testing is completely different. Um, And I think the question becomes is, is, you know, in two years, four years when COVID fingers crossed and hopefully is not really a thing any longer, what does it look like then? Um, You're already sort of seeing um, states like Georgia uh, and states like Florida um, that have already said, you know, we're going to require testing for this coming admission cycle. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens next. But in terms of your specific question, sort of where we are right now, we're in this like test optional landscape where no more subject testing. And if you're a student who has had like real difficulties taking the test or you can't even take it because testing centers are closed, you just have a lot more flexibility within the process, which I think is really great for everybody involved. Something you just brought up is actually really interesting. You talked about states like Georgia and how they're already requiring those tests again. I think the regionality of this whole question is super interesting. So you're saying a state like Georgia is already going to require tests versus I've heard California wants to, you know, create their entirely own tests. So could you kind of right. talk about, right. you know, what these different regions, what their plans are, what the motivations behind those plans are, the pros and cons? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I live in, in San Diego um, and have been very much, you know, tuned into, you know, what the, the UC system and the Cal State system, what they're going to do. Do. And yeah, I think the regionality piece is really interesting. I mean, I think without maybe going too in depth, uh, I think you can probably make a very direct connection between sort of pandemic policies and uh, ways in which things have been handled with different states. And now what is happening with the SAT and the ACT and requiring a test um, in some states versus like California, as you mentioned, just saying, we're not even going to take the SAT and the ACT any longer. And it's not going to be a part of our process. And we'll sort of develop our own test, or maybe we won't, you know, we'll see what happens, you know, in three or so years, it was sort of the, the California model. I mean, I think from my from my sort of perspective, and I think from the company's perspective as well, we're always trying to help our students the best way that we can. So I think any policy that exists that is uh, somewhat of a barrier for students to be able to have confidence and a relative stress-free process is, is a con, right? Because, you know, there are going to be a lot of students. Uh, California is a good example. Um, I have students that are in Vancouver and Toronto and other parts of the world who haven't been able to take an SAT or ACT, um, and they're going to apply to college this fall because they couldn't, because they get a, an email two days before test day that says, hey, sorry, but it's been canceled or they can't even register for one um, because it's, it's the, the test centers aren't, aren't even open. So what that means logistically is that you're going to have a wide range of students who can't apply to schools in Florida or schools in Georgia, not because they don't want to, but because 
something completely out of their control has happened. And now they won't have potentially won't have the opportunity to take a test, which means that they cannot apply to those particular schools. So politics aside and, and sort of pandemic response aside, you know, I think we're in a situation where schools and states are making decisions that are really impacting students and families about what their decisions are when those students and families didn't have control over the, the pandemic, it didn't have control over test centers being closed or open or anything along those lines. So I think, you know, it's the flexibility is important. Um, I was in admissions, you know, when, uh, you know, just uh, other natural disasters or natural disasters have, you know, sort of happened. And it was always really enlightening and heartening for me to see how admissions offices would say, you know, we'll extend deadlines for multiple days, you know, we'll be as flexible as possible. And I think that shows you sort of the people perspective that admissions has and want to take care of their applicants as much as possible. So I'm hoping that we'll continue to see that uh, continue through many different states and many different school policies, because at least for the next year, we were hoping that schools will just adapt the same policies policies they had last year, because even though, again, things are sort of getting better sort of in a lot of places, the impact, the bottleneck, you know, of testing is still very real and still impacting thousands upon thousands of students, um, you know, when those sort of test dates are, are coming up. And thinking about that bottleneck, I imagine, especially the students we work with, students who are very high achieving, Obviously, this is affecting students who are juniors and seniors right now and need to take that SAT, but I can also imagine how it's affecting maybe freshmen or sophomore, because if you have these very high achieving students, that's maybe the first time they're going to take their SAT or ACT. So that kind of entire timeline of the first time they take it, then they go back and study that entire timeline is just getting pushed further and further. And I can imagine that it's quite stressful. Absolutely. I mean, I'm working with students right now where, you know, traditionally they would have taken the test twice probably already or at a minimum at least one time and I have many students who haven't taken it not even once so what it does is not only is it stressful just on the testing side but it really sort of impacts every piece of the process conversations assignments work that we would be doing you know traditionally you know around July August September now will still happen, but it will likely happen in, in a different way. And the time will be a little bit different because now we're going to have many students taking a first or second SAT in August or September, whereas if they're taking it for the third time or if they're already done, it just changes the perspective and sort of changes the way in which we're preparing for it or changing the way in which, you know, we are talking about and navigating the timeline around that time. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the stress and the anxiety of the process is really high no matter what. But whether you're a first year student or someone who's applying to college, you know, this fall, uh, what's happening now has an impact some way, shape or form. And, and we're obviously doing the best that we can to help to mitigate, you know, some of those things as much as possible. And you mentioned past natural disasters and incidents that have maybe caused delays, I, I assume more regionally in admissions. Has there ever been something at this scale or even close to this scale that's affected admissions nationwide? Uh, never, at least that I can think of. So I was thinking about like you know, Hurricane Katrina, earthquakes that have happened sort of in regions in China, power outages due to tornadoes or hurricanes in sort of parts of, of the Midwest. But yeah, I can't really think of anything in my lifetime um, that sort of impacted like the entire world. Like this is a this is sort of like like a movie, like in, in relation to like an entire industry being sort of like upended, you know, over, you know, something again, sort of out of control for everybody. Um, so yeah, it's it's been, as I said, sort of earlier, really interesting to see the responses. And I think there there's a lot of, I think, skepticism sometimes about the admissions process, especially from families who just don't have experience with this process and thinking that admissions is 
some type of like scheme or some type of like, you know, closed network in which, you know, missions officers are, you know, making decisions that are not really sort of in the best interest of students, obviously not true, like in, in any way, shape or form. And I just hope that because of the way that most colleges have responded with just maximum flexibility from the testing piece, you know, to deadlines often being extended by multiple days, and that families understand that admissions officers and offices really just want to help. And although it's a really hard process, and many schools are taking a very small percentage of students that are applying, it, it doesn't mean that they don't care. And it doesn't mean that they're trying to make the process harder. And again, in most cases, they're really just trying to make things as easy as possible uh, within a very complicated and complex uh, process. You mentioned earlier that as far back as 2010, there had been other factors pushing this test optional, test blind. Mm-hmm. You know, could you talk about these factors outside of COVID? I think because of my experience at Bowdoin, um, at Regis, we were, we were test optional as well, sort of de facto had become sort of the test optional guru, paying attention to trends and paying attention to, to sort of what is happening. So, you know, in my experience, sort of, you know, 2010, and really before, way before that to some degree, there have been questions about how standardized um, or how standard is standardized testing and does it predict academic success at the college level and for who, because there are many studies that exist that sort of will, you know, blatantly and clearly tell you um, that standardized testing in terms of high scores skews towards uh, individuals that have the means to pay um, for test prep and for mostly sort of majority Caucasian sort of white, you know, students in, in relation to their ability to do well on, on testing. So a correlation between sort of race and the correlation between income when it comes to the ability to, to do well on the SAT or the ACT. So, and there's this, and even sort of going further back to the SAT and ACT in general, there are sort of sort of studies that will sort of tell you that it, it doesn't predict success at the college level and is so it needs to be looked at within very specific contextual factors um, and not just sort of based upon one number telling you everything but one number telling you a piece of the puzzle so used appropriately i I do think that the sat or or act can be helpful i think for a long time that tended to be sort of what people were using to really make decisions or sort of have these cutoffs that really no longer exist anymore so i think pre-covid you know 10 20 years ago um, a lot of schools a lot of them smaller liberal arts institutions that traditionally have really um, uh, been around to, to really sort of value sort of the student experience, took a test optional approach because they knew with their data, their analysis, their ability to have a much smaller cohort on campus that they were seeing that it didn't really mean as much as families and students thought it does. So that was sort of happening sort of before all of the COVID sort of nonsense began. And then COVID happened. And then, you know, again, the mass, um, you know, sort of response was to remove testing. And what I have found to be interesting as well, is that a lot of schools didn't only say, we're going to sort of not have testing for one year. There were many schools that said, you know, let's do this for two, three, four, five years. Um, There were some other schools, I'm thinking of Caltech for right now, Reed is another one that said, Let's just go test blind. Let's not even take the SAT, the UC system, Cal State system, the same way for this year as well. So my sort of conversation with families has been, if this was so important to colleges, why are so many not requiring it anymore, right? Like if it was so valuable to the process for admissions officers, you would think there'd be more of a fight to keep it. But so many have said, let's just do this for three, four, five years. Let's see what happens. We're evaluated after that. And most of the time when you're doing like a three-year study, you're not going to go backwards. It's just sort of a way to give you some time to make sure, you know, that you're making the right decision. So, you know, as I said, sort of in the, in the beginning of this, uh, we will see what happens in, in the future, you know, when it comes to the, to the landscape. But the momentum was sort of already there 
to have more and more schools be test optional. I think, and then it's obviously so unfortunate what did happen, but I think with COVID, it really served as a catalyst for schools that were probably like already like ready to go test optional, but maybe would have done it in five years. It just gave them sort of the ability to say, you know what, let's just do it now. And let's sort of see what happens. And let's sort of, you know, make the decision that we think is best for our students. And that's similar to what we've seen in other industries with, you know, this trend towards remote work is that this was a trend that we mm-hmm. were already seeing, a trend towards Absolutely. e-commerce, mm-hmm. contactless mm-hmm. pickup. These were all trends that already mm-hmm. existed and COVID was kind of just the match that ignited it. Absolutely. And I think I was literally having this conversation. My wife is a, is a, is a school teacher, a public school teacher in San Diego, and she's planning on an event for, for this week, the first like in-person event that they can do. And, um, you know, we were talking about like going to Target like, to pick something up. Uh, and we've been doing sort of like the curbside approach. And we were thinking like, is this going to go away? And it's kind of hard to see it going away because it's easier, it's super convenient, and it allows Target to get a ton more money versus uh, going to another store you know, that has the option versus a store that doesn't. And I'm kind of seeing and thinking about the test optional kind of in the same way. Yes, will there be schools that will go back to requiring testing 100%? But I think there are going to be a lot of other schools that are going to say, Let's use this as a way to help our students. Let's use this as a way to de- decouple testing, you know, from admissions. And let's sort of go in a different way. Um, and I think that's something that has been, you know, cool sort of about this process is putting students first and uh, not sort of worrying about other factors within the process. You mentioned test blind policies. Could we clarify test optional versus test blind and any other terms that kind of get thrown in there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the easiest way to describe it would be test optional is sort of is, is, is optional, right? So a university or college in their admissions process will still accept uh, standardized testing, will still look at it, will still evaluate that testing, and will have it be a part of the way that they make admissions decisions. If you don't send it, it will not disadvantage you, uh, it will not hurt you, but if your score is indicative of your academic profile, you have high testing, um, if you haven't had any issues with the ability to take testing, then you should, you know, send it in and it will be a part of your process and the admissions decisions. Test blind can also be called test free, um, but test blind, I think, is probably the more sort of uh, more common term. It means that a university or college is not taking the test into consideration when making an admissions decision. So if you send it, they don't even look at it. Uh, And if you don't send it, then that's okay because it's the same thing because they're just not gonna have it be a part of their process really in any way, shape or form. So test optional, most common and has really been sort of the results of, again, many things we talked about already, but the most common um, sort of decision that colleges have been making since COVID test blind, sort of test free by school numbers has been less common, but because of the UC, you know, sort of Cal State systems probably has been impacting sort of more students is because of the vast number of applications that those systems are getting. But yeah, so those are the two definitions that we're sort of mostly talking about when we're talking about, you know, sort of how this is impacting students right now. Even before COVID, when I hear test optional, I always wonder if you have a student, they're very high achieving, they have great extracurriculars, great essays, great grades, mm-hmm. and they choose not to submit their SAT score. Is it ever mm-hmm. a red flag to an admissions officer who thinks, well, everything great else is great about this student, so they mm-hmm. must have had a low SAT score? So I think it's, a, it's about training, right? And I think any time you've done or have, or have had a process in place and then you change it, you have to recalibrate. You have to train yourself uh, or have, uh, in this particular case, have people train you to better understand how, as an admissions officer, am I going to make decisions now that this this number or this factor in the process may not be something that I can, that I will see uh, within the process or for a test blind institution that I'll never see, you know, from students as well. So in my experience, it's more about habits 
and routine than having it be something that is a red flag, if, if that makes sense. So it's more about looking at a profile, looking at an application and feeling weird because, oh wait, the testing's not here versus making a judgment about, oh, that must mean that it's low. Because that's typically not what is what is happening. Again, when you have, in your example, a high achieving student, right? So great grades, great coursework, great extracurriculars, I'll sort of extend it to say great essays, you know, great recommendations. And I'm excited about that student and I don't have testing. The question becomes, am I not going to admit that student because they don't have one number or one component that my institution is saying is now optional? And the training that, that goes into uh, helping admissions officers you know, decrease their bias when it comes to testing and allow them to better understand why not having the score can, in a lot of cases, be more beneficial to the university or college at large is what all of these colleges were doing, you know, probably even before they made the official announcement that they were going test optimum because it takes time. You know, you have a lot of people that have been doing this work for a long time. And, you know, I remember even going from like reading paper applications to reading via a computer and that becomes hard, not because it changes the way that I do things in terms of the, the types of, of decisions that I'm making, but the process is different. And again, I sort of liken the SAT optional or blind, uh, you know, policy to something very similar. It doesn't mean we're not taking, uh, you know, amazing students or that, you know, there's this other thing that people get concerned about. They're taking like lesser quality students. But when you have a four year transcript and you have, you know, incredible uh, abilities to uh, read about recommendations and sort of what the student is like in the classroom and, you know, many other components that make up the admissions process you have enough to make a great decision, you know, based upon what is there. So it's just about training. It's just about making sure that the admissions office you know, is on the same page. And, and I think as humans, we all have sort of biases that we sort of fight against. But I think with training and with really understanding why these things are happening, it really helps to lessen those things. But overall, in my experience, admissions officers want great students. They want people that can go on a college campus and make a really fantastic and positive impact. And not having an SAT score is not going to get in the way um, of, uh, of making, you know, sort of that decision, you know, that the admissions officer wants to make. You've touched on some of the pros for admissions officers of these policies, that they're able to let in a more diverse cohort of students, mm -hmm. you know, remove biases. Mm -hmm. But could we talk about maybe some of the cons from the point of view of admissions offices? Is it something about efficiency? Is it more difficult for your job? Yeah, I think that's a, really, that's a good point and a good perspective to bring up. I would say that anytime you have less information, we can sort of put that into like the con, you know, category, because when you are thinking about the thousands upon thousands of decisions that admissions officers are making when you don't have something that you traditionally have had relied upon to make a decision, it certainly can make the process a bit harder. It can make it different and it can likely probably slow the process a little bit as well, at least in the beginning stages as admissions officers are getting used to the decisions they would be making without having the SAT or the, uh, or the ACT in, in, in front of them. Beyond sort of the efficiency piece or, you know, not having something um, that typically was there that may not be there any longer. Most colleges and universities will tell you that nothing else really changes. If anything, you mentioned the diversity of, of a university or college. Um, the other thing I would point to is just academic performance, because at the end of the day, that's what this is about to some degree is, you know, trustees and presidents and, and, and academic deans and faculty wanting to make sure that the people that admissions uh, officers admit are going to have success academically at that level. You have a whole wing of, you know, student life people and residence hall people that will care about sort of the personal aspect of this process and other things like that. Um, and that's obviously a big piece of this process as well. But in terms of like, when people say, oh, no SAT, no ACT, usually the first comment is, well, are they prepared? And again, this the data, the research, 
um, the experience of admissions officers, every place that I worked, there would always be an analysis of who we admitted and, and then looking at them by semester uh, and by year, how they actually did when they stepped on campus. And it was always really interesting to me because you would have students who we would admit who we loved and we thought were going to do well. And sometimes they didn't. And sometimes they had the highest testing that, that we saw. And then we had a lot of other students who didn't have the highest testing, but had great grades, had a great coursework. But again, because those sort of, you know, contextual factors maybe didn't do as well on the SAT or the ACT. And they were just like, you know, just grooving, hit the ground running and were doing super, super well. And my point being is that the SAT just doesn't matter as much or the ACT doesn't matter as much as people think it does when it comes to academic performance at the college level and the, your four years of high school and the courses you're taking, um, your writing ability through the multiple essays that colleges have you write, those things are going to be way more important and way more important indicators of academic success at the college level. So I think there's, again, a lot of assumptions made about the process of admissions, or if you don't have this, how does that impact something? But I, I would say and again, I have the experience of working at multiple test optional institutions, is that there are way more pros than cons, and the cons are more about process and The training. advantages for students and those are seem pretty are, obvious. You know, I can imagine a lot. Of, if I were a student, I would be thrilled if I could go back in time and not have to take the SAT or the ACT. But are there any disadvantages for students that you could think multiple of? Periods over the year to make I guess sure I would say everyone this works I think that there is on the same page about the type of Because again, admissions is very contextual, right? So every place that I worked, you know, we were looking at where a person went to high school, you know, where we were looking at, um, you know, sort of what their four-year experience academically was, and really how that compared to other students, you know, from their own high school, you know, from their region, from their state, from their country, etc. So I think when you're thinking about not having an SAT or an ACT, but let's say you go to a high school where most other students took the test and most other students did really well. And then you're a student who doesn't have the test at all. I don't think it's a disadvantage, but what I think it does for an, an admissions officer is think about, I have more information you know, from, from other students, uh, more information that is really positive and really good. And I have another student who maybe these other factors are really great, but we don't have sort of something that everyone else has. Now, again, test optional means you don't have to send it in. And also that it's not going dis to disadvantage you within the process. And I think those two things fundamentally are true. We also have to consider though, that within the process of comparison and within the process of making a comprehensive decision, when you have a higher test, that's obviously going to look impressive to an admissions officer who is trying to make the best decision that they can uh, about the person's predicted success at the college level. Now, do I think an admissions officer on that factor alone is going to make a decision sort of pro-testing? Um, I don't believe that because again, if the student without testing has done everything that they can to be impressive and that sort of vibes and matches really nicely with the institution they're applying for. You know, we've seen even in this past year, um, you know, students who, who have submitted versus those who haven't, you know, get in to, to the same school um, because they, you know, these schools are sort of taking tests optional in the way that it, that it's meant to be used. Um, what we're telling our students is this, prepare for the test, take the test, and then talk to our, our, you know, our counseling team, your counseling team about what is the best decision for you individually. Because in a larger, you know, sort of way, our job is about having a college list that is uh, exciting for the student that sort of matches the things that they're looking for. And ultimately, colleges have their own priorities and their own institutional objectives. And the, the decision that they're going to make are so out of anyone else's control other than the people in that room, you know, making those decisions. So, and we're always going to make sure we're putting the student's best foot forward. So even in the example that I gave, 
if we think that a student's ability to get in is better without sending the test, even though we may know that most other kids are going to take it and send it in, we'll still tell the student, we advise you not to send it because we want to make sure you're putting your best foot forward. And, and for every student that we work with, that's going to look or potentially could look you know, a little bit different. So, you know, it's all about individual, you know, sort of context and making sure that we're using all of our data and resources to help students make sort of the, the best decisions that they can. And sometimes that's hard, you know, to do, but it's really sort of why, why we're here to help the best way that we can. So to really oversimplify a very complex process, not <laughs> submitting your test does not disadvantage you, but submitting a good test score advantages you. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I think that's a good way to oversimplify a very complex process. Yes. So that's that's all correct for sure. And I think, again, what we talk with our students a lot about is is time and resources and everything you said is correct. It's what we tell our students as well. We also have to think about the time factor and the preparation factor and the stress factor. And I think these are all things that make sort of the process more complex. Um, but yes, if you can take the test and do really well, there's no reason why you shouldn't, like you shouldn't not submit high testing, like to make a point that, oh, it's test optional. I'm not going to send it in. Um, if you have high testing, you should send it in and, and that's going to help you sort of put your best foot forward. Um, but if you don't, or if you haven't taken the test, you know, there's only so much that you can do and, and it will, you know, sort of help you in the best way that we can to make sure um, that everything, you know, is going to, again, put your best foot forward, uh, even without that particular test. How should students on an individual level make the decision if they should submit their test scores or not? So I would immediately be looking at the, the types of schools that the student is interested in. And this is exactly what I do. So I'll look at the website of the school and look at their middle 50% um, of, of admitted students and what their test scores are. So for this example, let's say it's like a 1400 to a 1520. And if I'm working with a student that has, you know, around that 1500 or above a 1520, the vast majority of the time I'm telling that student, submit your score because, you know, 75% of students got in who sort of had a score higher than sort of what that displayed number would be. If you're sort of way below like that 1400 mark or near that 1400 mark, um, that could be a reason to potentially be test optional. I think the other connection though is what are your grades like? What are, what are the courses that you've taken, you know, at your school in comparison to the highest rigor, you know, that's available and whether that's an, an AP driven school or an IB driven school or a school that just uses, you know, sort of honors or different sort of other markings and doesn't have sort of APs or IB options. That's another way to sort of be thinking about this as well, because the, they can sort of help figure out what we should be doing in that particular you know, situation. If there is a student who has a really high GPA with really high rigor, but their testing doesn't reflect that, then that could be a reason to not submit testing because you, you're not putting your best foot forward if you have the ability to, 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 um, to not submit the testing. If your grades maybe are not as good and your testing is sort of better than what your GPA indicates, but maybe sort of lower than what that middle 50% is, we still may have you send it because it sort of helps balance out maybe bumps in the road that you had on during your high school career. So I tell my staff, it's not like an X or Y, you know, if X, then you do Y in terms of sort of how decisions are made. It's really about looking at all of the different uh, different factors. Um, but middle 50% score, you know, when it comes to the college itself, and sort of high school GPA, high school sort of rigor, those are the main things that we're paying attention to as we're advising students what to do or not to do when it comes to their testing. Without the SAT subject tests, how can students still sort of supplement their application? How can they demonstrate their interest, their expertise in more specific subjects? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the decision to discontinue the subject testing was really shocking. It just sort of like happened. Like we just got this email and I was like, hey, like we're not going to allow subject testing or, or we're not going to offer subject testing, uh, you know, immediately in the United States. And then, you know, after June internationally, this happened, I believe, in, in February. Um, so I think it's really about taking advantage of the hardest curriculum 
that you have available to you at your high school, but also paying attention to what your ability is, right? Because a lot of students um, are going to think, well, I need to take the highest curriculum available to me. But if you can't do well, you know, in that curriculum, then you have to sort of scale back a little bit to make sure that you're still doing well within that particular environment. So taking advantage of your curriculum and those choices is definitely number one. I think secondly, if you are at a school that has an AP program, then taking advantage of those courses is obviously going to be, you know, a, a good idea. And that sort of matches hand in hand uh, with the first sort of piece of, of advice that I gave. I mean, the third thing is uh, to take advantage of, of outside uh, sort of resources to be able to uh, delve deeper into the academic uh, interest area that you think that you want to major in in college. So take advantage of online uh, and virtual resources, whether it's online classes or webinar series or master classes or whatever it may be, to learn more, to show more expertise, because so much of this process is about how do you write about what you want to major in? How do you talk about it in a potential interview? and basically sort of prove to a missions officer that you know what you're talking about when it comes to, I want to major in physics and these are the reasons why. So I think any type of, ex of, of experience that you can get outside of the classroom can be really, really helpful. There are a ton of different summer program options, you know, some are paid, you know, some are, are sort of uh, free that you can take advantage of. Take advantage of local universities, local community colleges, local organizations that can that that may be sort of more uh, extracurricular but have like an academic lean or bent to them so those are all ways to sort of to show a college that you have this major that you want to pursue because for all the things that you've done to show you know that you have not only the ability but also the knowledge to uh, and, and really confidence to sort of be making that decision um, at the time that you submit your application. What do you think of students self-studying and taking AP exams when they didn't take that AP class? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I would say most of the time we will sort of ask why or sort of counter sort of that request with, well, if you're going to do that, this is how it impacts the rest of your time and the rest of your schedule and the rest of uh, the, the sort of limited amount of time that we all have to do other things that a college that a college and admissions officer will likely care a lot more about. And I think there's this notion that uh, you just have to be taking a ton of AP tests. And if you don't do that, then you don't get into college. And one of the examples I always sort of get from families is, well, I know, I know this student or I have a friend, right? Sort of always like, you know, people that are secondly or third, thirdly connected sort of to you in some way. And they say, well, this person took this number of AP classes and they got into Harvard. So I have to do the same thing. And the problem with that is that it's taking a very complex process and sort of funneling it or filtering it down to one reason why a college admitted somebody. I can tell you this, there's no way that Harvard takes anybody because of the number or the scores of AP tests that a student takes. It's just not something that they do. Um, it's not something that any colleges do because it would be too hard to do that when so many students have high testing, <laughs> so many students have uh, high AP scores. Um, they care much more about you know, what does a person write about in their essays? What do, what do teachers write about them in terms of recommendations? Um, what are these other factors that they're sort of paying attention to within their process? So what I talk to families about is this. If you're going to do extra stuff, we have to have a conversation about what it's going to take you away from. And that often doesn't factor into their decision. They just think, oh, I'll just take all these other AP classes and not worry about all these other things. But when I sort of talk to my students, it's about this. How are you spending your time with cl clubs and activities? How are you delving deeper into your academic interest with those outside activities I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago? Because fundamentally, that activities list, the ability to sort of prove expertise within a, a, an area of interest uh, we call that in genius, the application persona, the narrative, the story of your application needs to be incredibly strong and incredibly, incredibly marketable. And you can't do that 
if all of your time or a lot of your time is spent self-studying for APs and, and taking those tests in May, because it always takes more time than people think. It always adds more stress and more pressure than people think. And ultimately, the decisions that I was making at any of the schools that I worked for was never about, hey, guys, I want to admit this person because they have seven AP classes. It was always about this is what they wrote about in their essay that was super compelling. They are an amazing student, but this is what I think they'll do on this campus. And this is the impact that they're going to be able to make. And that has nothing to do with the number of AP scores that a student was taking. So most of the time, I would say we're pretty not as excited about taking extra AP classes. Again, it's all contextual and individual you know, students and their particular motivations and ability to handle the workload plays a major role in everything you know, that we advise and, and guide our students to do. But I would, I would, as a general rule, say not to do it and to focus more on the outside of school activities, building a signature project, you know, doing something that can really make an impact you know, in your community, in your state, in your school, uh, rather than worrying about extra AP classes and doing something your school doesn't offer. Because again, when schools are, when admissions officers are making decisions, they're paying attention to the, to the context of your high school. So what matters more than anything else is not the extra stuff that you're doing, but are you taking advantage of every opportunity at your particular high school within your curriculum to do the hardest things possible? Once you do that, Focus on other stuff because those extra one, two AP classes is not going to make the difference when it comes to how, you know, someone, even at the most selective schools is, is going to, is, is how they're going to make their decision. What is the outlook for testing post COVID? Will colleges that require testing be in the minority? Will it be, you know, sort of bigger state colleges? So the, the, the Florida uh, state system, even during COVID, they always require testing. So uh, University of Florida is sort of the, the biggest one. They sort of always require testing. Georgia, three, four days ago, made a decision to revert back to requiring testing. Today, or may, may have happened last night, the University of North Carolina system, so UNC Chapel Hill being sort of the flagship, um, they have decided to continue their test optional policy for another, another year. I think what we have found is that private universities and private colleges just have more autonomy. So they're able to do sort of whatever they want to do based upon their trustees, their president, their admissions offices and, and officers. And uh, it's been just easier to sort of make those decisions to be test optional or not. And what we have found is most of those institutions are test optional already or will announce soon that they will be for this coming year. And as I said earlier, a lot of them have just said, we're going to do this for two, three, four, five years, and we'll address it then. Um, on the public school side, I do think it's harder. You know, there are just a lot more constituencies involved and a lot more, you know, sort of uh, red flags to, to sort of to go through to make it, um, you know, test optional. A lot of, uh, in some states, you had been required to take an SAT or an ACT to even graduate from some of these in, from some of these public schools in schools in particular states. So I think it does make it more complicated. I think that we will see colleges go back to requiring the SAT and the ACT. My prediction on May 27th, 2021, is that I think, and this is my personal opinion, is that I think all the Ivies are going to go back to requiring testing. And probably a lot of schools in that sort of top 10, you know, sort of top 20, you know, sort of area. But I think with that even being said, test optional is not going away. There are too many schools now that have said this has worked. Too many schools that have said this has helped us bring in a more diverse class, um, a more successful class. So when you're able to do those things and not lose quality, then that's sort of what the, the ultimate decision makers really care about. And in most places, subject testing is already gone. We know that already. So I think it's going to look different than it does today. But I think it'll be still skewed towards um, probably most colleges in that top 100 or so probably requiring testing. But I think as the years go on, I think, you know, this is, is an opportunity for colleges to say, hey, this worked for us. Let's continue it for 
however many years or perpetuity. But I do think that sort of the, the tippity top sort of of the iceberg in terms of the, the most selective schools, I think will probably still end up requiring it, uh, while others who perceived or not have a bit more flexibility uh, will probably uh, go test optional. But I'm excited. I, I do not know, you know, what is going to happen, but uh, in, in a year or so, it'll be interesting to see what the landscape does look like. What I do hope, however, what it does is is really make the point that the SAT or the ACT can play a part in this process, but it doesn't have to mean everything. And families and students really should be making sure that they're taking advantage of of, of clubs and organizations and other academic opportunities to uh, delve deeper into their application persona, deeper into their passions as a student, and not just only focus on the SAT or the ACT, because fundamentally they shouldn't be doing that in the first place. But I'm hoping that with COVID, it, it has shown that you can get in without this. And even if in the future it's required again, then take it prepare for it, do as well as you can, but also know that colleges are going to likely have more flexibility in their future to take potentially some lower testing because they know that it works and they know that the four years of, of a transcript, the four years of those courses, um, the writing and the recognitions, et cetera, uh, plays a, a stronger role in how admissions officers are going to make their decisions. And we'll link our blog in the description of this episode because we have a running tally of you know, what each school is saying. And I think that'll be really helpful. Is there anything else you'd like to share with students and families? Any other words of advice, final thoughts? I guess I would say is that, you know, this process is hard and difficult um, and and complex, but it also can be a really important tool for self-reflection and uh, students having, you know, a lot of abilities to learn a lot about themselves. So testing, you know, is going to matter for some schools, as we know, it's going to not matter for a lot of other schools as well. But do your best to sort of control the things that you can control. And uh, if you're working with Ingenious, listen to your counselors and the advice that they're giving. If you're not working with us, you know, yet, focus on, on grades, focus on what you're doing on the day-to-day experience of high school, prepare for the SAT or the ACT, do as well as you can. But just know that admissions officers, and in, in, in universities and colleges, care for you as a person. And when you can you know, relay that in your application through your uh, essays and through your recommendations and through sort of a really strong narrative within you know, the entirety of the application, it's always gonna mean more than you know, one test you know, on one day. And I think fundamentally that, that always has been true, but I think even more true now because of the way that COVID has impacted you know, so many different things when it comes to admissions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zach. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into navigating testing changes in college admissions. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag InsideAdmissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.